The following sermon audio has been brought to you by Christ Church Downtown. For more information, check us out online at www.christkirk.com. All God's people said, Amen. Let's rise and worship the triune God. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and also with you. From uh, Psalm 105, verses 1 and 3. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, sing to him, sing psalms to him, talk of all his wondrous works, glory in his holy name, let the hearts of those rejoice who seek him. Lift up your hearts, we lift them up unto the Lord. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we gladly join the psalmist and give thanks to you. We call upon your name, and your name is Jesus. We are to make known his deeds among the peoples, and so we declare your great gospel among your people, among all peoples, people from Moscow and Deary, from China and Kuwait, at the university and in the nursing homes. We sing to you and marvel at what you have done, and we desire that many others would see and join in the glory. Our hearts rejoice now, for we seek you, and we seek you in the name of Jesus, and amen. Amen. Jesus continues to teach us in the Lord's Prayer to ask our Father, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And we know from James 1.13 and other passages that God does not tempt us, but he directs our steps to places where we may be tempted. In fact, every step that we take is a step into the presence of a possible temptation. Today you will stand before innumerable temptations between belief and unbelief, disobedience or obedience. There are temptations while you are here coming to church this morning to have fussy hearts, There are uh, temptations while you're singing, while you're listening, while you're walking, while you're driving, in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, in sickness and in health. It's like like a, uh, a marriage vow that you take. Like, do you face temptations until death do you part? I do. And knowing that there are so many temptations and knowing that God directs your steps Christians must pray, lead us not into temptation. This is a humble request from a tender conscience that the Lord would keep you from the path of temptations, to spare you from that dangerous edge so you may not fall. But if you must enter there, then pray, Lord, deliver us from evil. Pray that God would give you the grace not to yield to that temptation. Pray to the one who provides a way of escape from temptation. Pray to your deliverer that he would deliver you from evil. But often, you think that temptations aren't really out there, that you're not that vulnerable, that you can stand. The Lord has a word for you. He says, Let everyone who thinks that he can stand take heed lest he fall. Take heed, young man and young woman, who flirt or touch or make out lest you fall. Take heed, teenagers, of your playlists, your texts, your pics, your Snapchats, your hangouts, lest you fall. Take heed, mothers of finding contentment in the condition of your house or your weight or your meal plan or the achievement of your kids, lest you fall. Take heed, fathers, of apathy as the head of your home so that way you and your house may not fall. Take heed, brothers and sisters, and so pray, our Father, lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. And amen.
Psalm 106, verses 6 through 8. We have sinned with our fathers. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedly. Our fathers in, e in Egypt did not understand your wonders. They did not remember the multitude of your mercies, but rebelled by the sea, the Red Sea. Nevertheless, he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make his mighty power known. Father, we confess our sin that we have failed to look to you for deliverance from evil, choosing rather to trust our own solutions. This is pride rather than the humble request of a child asking for help from his father. Forgive us for this. We further confess that instead of praying that you would not lead us into temptation, we have rather run headlong into temptations and into evil. We have not fought against our temptations, but we have made friends with them and invited them into our homes and into our conversations, into our evening plans. All of this is sin, and we confess it as sin. And we confess our own individual sins to you now and Selah. We ask all of this in the mighty name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and amen. amen. Please rise for the assurance of God's pardon. From Hebrews chapter 4, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but with one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that you may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Brothers and sisters, if, if you have come here to the throne of grace, confessing your sins, confessing your falling, your failures into temptation, if you have come to Jesus, your merciful and sympathetic high priest, then through the power of the gospel, I declare to you that your sins are forgiven through Christ. And thanks be to God. The sermon text is taken from Proverbs chapter 25, verse 28. He that hath no rule over his own spirit is like a city that is broken down and without walls. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we praise and thank you that you have summoned us here this morning into your house, into your city. Father, we praise you and we thank you that your city is safe and secure and that its walls will never fall. Father, we confess to you that we live in the midst of a people that are confused, that are ravaged by sin and Satan and death. Father, we confess that we contain remnants of that fallen city still in our own bodies, in our own families, in our own church, and it's all around us. Father, we know that you sent your son, Jesus, to build a city in this world, a safe haven, a place of refuge where you would begin to remake this whole world. We want to be part of that city and we want that city to begin in our own lives, in our own hearts. And so we ask for it now, boldly, in Jesus' name, and amen. amen. Please be seated. We live in an age ruled by passions and lusts. Uh, all, perhaps all ages are this way in some measure, some uh, to some degree, but uh, the obviousness of it is more or less uh, from age to age. It's, it's, on, it's in the newspapers, it's, on, it's in the news um, fairly, uh, quite a bit more obviously in some eras uh, than others. Why, um, why is what is going on, why is it going on the way that it is? Uh, why 
is uh, why is Hollywood overrun uh, by perverse men who mistreat women? Uh, why is pornography such a billions of dollars in, of industry? Why, um, why is politics such a mess that it is? Why are families broken? Why are children mistreated? Why are these uh, things happening? Well, one basic, simple way that the Bible would answer that question is to say it's because people are ruled by their passions and lusts. They do what they want to do. They do whatever they want to do when they want to do it. If it feels good, if it seems right, they do it. They're ruled by their passions and lusts. This is, in some ways, I refer to this sometimes as the gospel of Disney. Come to roost, right? The gospel of Disney is follow your heart. Right? Follow your heart. Do what seems right to you. Do what you want to do. Do what feels good to you. And what will happen? Well, there'll be some hard things along the way, but in the end, when the credits roll, there'll have been a wedding and everybody's happy. And everybody in the story will admit that you were right all along. Of course you had to follow your heart. Of course you had to do what felt good. You had to do what you felt like doing. Of course, of course. Of course. Well, that's a lie. That's a lie. When people do what they want, when they want it, when they are ruled by their passions, by their desires, by their lusts, horrible things happen, and it doesn't get better. There isn't a happy ending to that. It's a sad ending. And we're in the middle of uh, the, the careening uh, train crash of a culture that's been uh, imbibing this and living by this for decades, we are cities broken down without walls. We are ruled by passions and lusts. We do what we want, when we want it, how we want it. And so we are cities broken down without walls. We are Christians. This is a Christian church, a Christian worship service. And one of the things that we need to constantly remember, one of the things that we need to be constantly reminded of is that the source of this anarchy the source of this anarchy is the heart of man. Every man doing what is right in his own eyes, which is a phrase you find in the book of Judges frequently, in the chaos of the book of Judges, every man doing what is right in his own eyes, ruled by his own passions, his own lusts, his own desires, what's right in his own eyes, that's anarchy. And the source of that anarchy is the heart of man. It begins in the heart of man. That's where it comes from. And unless the heart of man is renewed, is transformed, is changed, and, and it's changed into the kind of heart that is self-governed by the Spirit of Christ, all other governments are doomed to fall. Unless the heart of man is renewed and transformed and becomes a self-governed city by the power of the Spirit of Christ, all governments will fall. Family government will fall apart, church government will fall apart, civil government will fall apart, business governments will fall apart, other free associations will fall apart. You cannot have associations of human beings that will withstand this pressure. It all flows out from the heart. There's either self-government, self-control that's ruled by the Holy Spirit, and that flows out into blessing in these other governments, or else you have fundamentally anarchy. You have chaos inside, and when you have chaos in here, with whims and lusts and desires and demands raging in here, if that's what's in here, that's what will come out. Inevitably, all other governments will fall. The fundamental, most fundamental government that God has instituted in this world is Self-government, self-control. I've, I've read Proverbs 25, 28 a minute ago is the kind of the, the key text, but really I'm going to be drawing off of a number of different Bible verses um, this morning, and I want to read a few of them here on the front end, and then there'll be several more as we, as we work through this, this topic. So I, I read just a few minutes ago from Proverbs 25, um, 28. Uh, he that hath no rule over his own spirit is like a city that is broken down and without walls. That's the kind of key 
the key text this morning. Here's a few others. This is from Acts 24, verse 25. Um, this, is, this is Paul, and he's arguing with a, a, a governor named Felix. He's, been a, he's a Roman-appointed governor um, in, this, in this region, in Palestine. And, and Luke writes in Acts 24, now as he reasoned, it's talking about Paul, as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid. This is just a summary of Paul's sermon to the governor. And what's he preaching on? He's preaching about righteousness, or what we could say is, called, is, is often, you could translate just as easily, justice. So he's, he's preaching about justice. He's a governor, he's a civil magistrate, and he's preaching to him about justice, self-control, and the judgment to come. And as he preaches this, Felix, it says, was afraid and kind of sends him away. He's, he's sort of hoping that maybe they'll, he'll bribe him to get free or something. Um, but that's, it was a centerpiece of Paul's sermon to Felix, the Roman governor. Another text from Galatians 5, you, you know this. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, self-government. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. And so you have that list of the fruits of the Spirit. This is what the Spirit, this is what the Holy Spirit works in those who have been regenerated, those who have been brought near by the blood of Jesus, who become Christians. The Holy Spirit is poured out in their hearts, and these fruits begin to emerge. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, and among them, self-control. Self-control, self-government. And, and, and Paul intimates here, following that, that there's this, otherwise there's this great battle because there's the flesh and there's the spirit. There are those who are governed by the old ways and there are those for whom those old ways have been crucified with Jesus. They've been nailed to his cross so that the flesh no longer rules them. Now they're ruled by the spirit. If we live in the spirit, let us also walk in the spirit. Here's another text from Ezekiel 36. This is a prophecy that was given to Israel about what God would do in Jesus. It says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and you will do them. The implication here, of course, is that we need new hearts. We need new hearts because what we have are hearts of stone, and our hearts of stone don't want to obey God's word. Our hearts of stone want to do whatever they want to do. They're rigid, they're unrelenting, they're flint, and they're stuck in habits and idolatries and addictions. They do what they want to do. Pastor Wilson has sometimes used the, the analogy of, of our wills being like that claw game at the grocery store that your kids are always trying to get you to do. And you're like, no way. <laughs> you, don't, you don't actually get anything out of there, do you? I don't know, maybe some of you have. Right? But what, can that, what, what options does the claw have? The only options the claw has is what's in that box. You put the coins in, you try to make the claw go around, drop on something, grab something, and drop. All it has, the only options it has are what's in the box, right? And so your choices are governed by who you are. And when you're in the flesh, when you're at war with God, when you have a heart of stone, then all you can grab out are rocks. You've got rocks, you don't have fruit, you have rocks. And so what comes out is lusts and desires to serve you. And so this prophet Ezekiel promises one day, one day God will give you a new heart and put a new spirit with you, in you and he will take away your heart of stone out of your flesh and he will give you a heart of flesh. He will give you a heart transplant and he will put his spirit within his people and his spirit will cause them to walk in God's statutes and keep the judgments and do them. That's the great hope of a new heart. It's a heart that wants to obey God. It's a heart that's not governed, it's not enslaved to the flesh, it's not enslaved to sin anymore. It's now, it loves to serve God. It loves to serve God because the Holy Spirit is in there driving you to it. 
And this is the gift of, of self-control, self-government, a godly self-government. Now, I want to just unpack this for a second and, and think about this concept of self-control, self-government, and some of the oddities that actually that come with it. Um, on the one hand, we know Scripture in Jeremiah 17 says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The prophet says, human heart is a wreck. They drive by, uh, you know, one of those salvage centers sometimes, and you just look at that thing and you just think, yeah, right? The dump. How do you find anything in there? That's your heart, right? That's our human heart. The human heart, the Bible says, is desperately wicked. It's deceitful above all things. Who can know it? How are you going to dig through that? And then the following verse says, the Lord searches the heart and tests the mind. And you might think, okay, all right, all right, God, you deal with it. It's a wreck, it's gunk, it's full of garbage. Good luck, Lord, good luck. Who can know it? I can't. But this doesn't actually let us off the hook. Proverbs says this in Proverbs 20, verse five. Counsel in the heart of man is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. Wait a second. <laughs> what? It's like deep water. You, you want to, you know, way, way down deep. It's really, it's, it's dark down there. You can't see. It's messy. It's dangerous. And he says, yes, and a man of understanding draws it out. A man, a man of understanding goes deep sea diving. A man of understanding knows that there's something there that he must do. A woman of understanding knows that despite the wreck, despite the mess, there's something there she must do. So it is, it really is like deep water in our hearts, but a man of understanding lets down the bucket of God's word. So to change the analogy slightly, think of it like a, a well. It's deep, it's dark, and you can't see the bottom. And he says, but the man of understanding lets down the bucket of God's word. In James 1:25, it says that a wise man is a man who looks at himself in the mirror of God's word so that he can know who he is. A foolish man looks at himself and then immediately forgets who he was. He immediately forgets what God's word says and how it applies to him. But a wise man looks at himself and remembers who he is. A wise woman reads the word and lets it reflect and says, oh, that's who I am. That's who I am in my flesh, that's who I am in my sin, and that's who I am in Jesus. And this is what I'm called to. This is the glory I'm called to. So the wise man of understanding lets down the bucket of God's word into those deep waters of our hearts. In other words, another way to frame this would be that the dominion mandate and the great commission includes our hearts. Remember the dominion mandate in Genesis 1? God creates Adam and Eve and says, I've given you dominion over everything. The birds of the air, the fish of the sea, everything on the, on the earth, I've given it to you. You're to rule over it, govern it wisely, glorify it. You're to rule over it. Well, part of that dominion mandate includes your own heart. You're to rule you well. You're to govern you well. You're to govern, yes, govern these things outside. We're to be good stewards of all of creation and all that God gives us, but you're supposed to be a governor of you. You're to take dominion of you. The Great Commission is a republication of the dominion mandate. The Great Commission is, is what Jesus said in Matthew 28 after he'd risen from the dead. He, he gathered his disciples together and, and he said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me Therefore, go into all the earth, all the world, preaching the gospel, discipling the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you. Jesus, the new Adam, the perfect Adam who didn't sin, who didn't fall, who saves us from our sins, he has all authority in heaven and earth and says, therefore, go, disciple the nations. Well, among the nations you are to disciple is your own unruly nation in your heart. All right, the raging pagan inside of you. You're to disciple that nation too. If we've been given rule over all creation and commissioned to disciple the nations, and we have, this includes self-dominion, self-government, self-discipleship. You are to disciple you. You are to disciple your own heart. But you say it like that, and it's, this is still sort of an odd and, and challenging endeavor. How do you look at you? 
Right? How do you look at you? It's like trying to chase, it's like a dog chasing their tail in a certain way, isn't it? How, how do you look at you? How do you rule you? How, 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 do, you, how do you get behind you and, and their established rule over yourself? You're, you're always you. How, how, how are you going to do that? How do you obey you rightly? I mean, if you're to rule you, then there's a certain sense in which you're supposed to obey you rightly. That's an odd way of speaking. It's a strange way of speaking. You say, how, well, how, how do you do that? That seems strange. And it is. It is it's, it's a mystery. The Bible says it's mysterious. It is like deep water. But though it's highly mysterious, the Bible says that it can and it must be done. Proverbs 20, again, this, is, this time verse 27. The spirit of the man, a spirit, the spirit of a man, is the lamp of the Lord, searching all the depths of his heart. God intends for a man, for a woman, by the power of God, to be able to begin searching out the depths of his own heart. God intends for us to know ourselves, to begin to, to come to know ourselves more and more, to see our own weaknesses, our own strengths, our own proclivities, our own sins, our own, all of those things, and, to, and just like you, you take a patch of dirt and you weed it, and you plant seeds, and you water it, and you cause fruit to grow in it. Just like you, you do this in other places, you see a mess of dishes, and you, you wash them, and you put them, you dry them, and you put them away. Just like you see um, a, a plot of um, a, a bunch of sticks, and you say, ah, this will be a great fort. All right? And you take that mess of logs and sticks, and you organize it into the shape of a house or a, a tree fort, just as you take things in the world and you study them and you understand them and you see what they might be made into, what they might be used for, the Bible teaches that we are to search our own hearts honestly and in humility to know them. Or Proverbs 4, verse 23, this is the father speaking to his son, and he says, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. A father looks his son in the eyes. He holds his son. You know, you know how your dad, I mean, I don't know, maybe your dad didn't do this, but my dad did this with me. He'd hold my chin. He'd hold my chin, and he'd look me in the eyes, and, 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 that, and, I, and I, 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 you know, you're sort of terrified, and you loved it all at the same time. And he'd hold your chin, and he'd look me in the eyes, and he says, son, and this father says, son, guard your heart with all diligence. Guard it. Keep it. Walk around that thing like a sentry. Get your gun out and walk around it. Get your sword out and walk around it. What's going in and what's going out? What's going on in there? Because out of it come the issues of life. Out of it spring the issues of life. Guard your heart with all diligence. It's a mystery, it's a challenge, it's even sort of strange to talk about governing you, obeying you, ruling you, but the Bible says it's something that can and must be done. We must search the depths of our hearts faithfully, we must guard our hearts diligently, because out of our hearts spring the issues of life. All of life, in some measure, all human endeavors, all human societies, all human realities, all human relationships, they come out of here. They come out of here. And so we guard them. And so, the Bible teaches that self-government is the first government. Self-government is the first government, the foundational city for all cities. It's the foundational city for all cities. This is simply self-evident by the fact that all governments are made up of people. So there's some sense in which we say, well, yeah, I mean, if, if, if a family is made up of people, and if a church is made up of people, and if a business is made up of people, and if a school is made up of people, and if a nation is made of people, then it's kind of important, you know, how the people are doing. If the people are not well, that's going to be reflected in those cities. So that's actually fairly self-evident. But the point really does need emphasis because what we're talking about, though, is how are people governed? How are people governed? How do people come to be self-governed? How, do how does it flow? 
What's the direction it flows in? Because if you're a statist, for example, and you believe that, that the state is the primary structure that gives cohesion and harmony and peace to the world, which is basically what the Enlightenment taught. The Enlightenment saw religious wars and, and, the, and the tyranny of the Roman Catholic Church and, and tribes and ethnicities arguing and fighting. The Enlightenment saw ethnic strife religious strife, tribal strife, and, and the Enlightenment came along and said, you know what we need? We need a superstructure that will pull all of these things together and hold them together in peace and make them be happy and good. And so we will have nations then that will pull these warring tribes together and these differing squabbling Christian denominations together and these different, if we have something over top of them all, it can hold them all together. All right, so that's, that's statism. But if, but if you're a statist, then you also must believe that essentially the way you are affected as an individual is primarily from the outside. You are primarily who you are by virtue of the outside uh, environment. You're happy because you have enough food or have enough clothing or have enough money or have enough sex or have enough pleasure. Have enough, uh, all, these are the things outside of you are the things that make you who you are. And so if people are unhappy and sad and angry and fighting and clashing, then we need to have something that stretches over them all that will then provide all of those things for them and then people will be happy and they will be nice to each other and we will have world peace. That, that's, that's essentially, that's the theory. But that assumes then, though, that even though all of these other structures are made up of individual people, the primary direction of influence is from the outside. And it works from the outside in. So if you can just get these people organized in the right way and you get them in classes and in little desks and schools and, and, and taking this, giving them this information, the information can come in and, and it can all be organized in a way that... that, that gets them where they need to be. But that's not how the Bible teaches that people are primarily formed. You cannot get a just nation from unjust men. You cannot get a just nation from unjust men and you can't force it in. You can't give them enough money, enough stuff, enough pleasure, enough of what they think they want in order to turn them into just men. You cannot have a pure church made up of impure men. You cannot have a gracious family if the hearts of the members of that family are not full of grace. And you can't order it in. You can't summon it up. You can't push it, you can't say, all right, I'm the head of my home. We will be gracious now. Right? I'm, the, I'm the CEO of this company. Everybody's going to be happy now. I'll give you all raises. Oh, yeah, well, is, that, is that short-term happiness? Sure. Is that, that's short-term, yeah. You might have some short-term happiness. But you can't change their hearts with these external things. It won't really fix them. Good laws are God's gift to sinful men to constrain them, but long-term, even the best laws, the best policies, the best structures will be overthrown by unrighteous men. So don't get me wrong. I'm not saying because there are bad guys, there should be no laws. No, there are bad guys, and we should, we should be thankful for anything, any semblance of just laws, any semblance of just policy, any semblance of, of structure in our world, we should be thankful for it. But what we have to recognize is that even those best structures and policies and laws will eventually be eroded and overthrown if the hearts of men and women are not changed. If they're not changed in here, it doesn't, you know, the best rule in the world, what are they going to do? Well, they, they might be afraid of it for a little while. They might be afraid of the fines, the consequences, the penalties, but eventually they'll figure a workaround. Good laws are God's gift to sinful men to constrain them. Good structures, good governments, 
They are God's gift to sinful men to constrain them, but long-term, even the best laws will be overthrown by unrighteous men. Out of the heart springs the issues of life. Out of the heart springs the issues of life. It starts in the heart. It starts here and it comes out. It works its way out. Men cannot ultimately be other than what they are in their hearts. This is what Jesus taught in Matthew 7. Jesus says this in Matthew 7. Every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. You are what you are. You have, you, you make, you produce, you bring out, you pr- all these, what you are. And you can't do other than what you are. You can't produce other than what you are. So in the flesh, man is ruled by the flesh, and therefore he does the works of the flesh. Paul talks this way in a few places. Romans 6 and 7, Galatians 5. And in Romans 7 in particular, he, you know, Paul expresses this so well that, that, that every, everybody can, re- can reckon with this. Everyone can reckon themselves and see themselves in Paul's description of this man sold under bondage. He says, I, I do the things that I don't even really want to do. And I keep doing them anyway. I believe in justice. I believe in truth-telling. And I still cut the... I don't tell the whole truth all the time. I believe in generosity. I believe in giving. And, and I am really stingy. I believe that you should do unto others what you would have them do to you. And, and I, I do not do that. Deep down, if we were honest with ourselves, every person in this room knows that we are deeply, deeply selfish beings. Given, given ourselves, given, given our proclivities, we serve ourselves. We do what we want to do. We do what feels good to us. Paul says in Romans 8, after describing this this deep war that we have inside of us, he says, so then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That's what it's to be in the flesh. We We cannot please God, and we feel that war waging inside our hearts, doing things that we don't even believe in, doing things that we don't want to do, doing things we know are wrong. Those in the flesh cannot please God, but you, speaking to those who have trusted in Jesus, but you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. You cannot please God in your flesh. You have to have the spirit of Christ dwelling in you in order to please God. If you don't have the spirit of Christ, you don't belong to God and you can't please him. And so the Bible teaches that the central stronghold of rebellion against God and against his justice is the citadel of the heart of man in the flesh. There's this citadel in our hearts that wants to be our own God, wants to be our own king, wants to serve us, me, and that's the central stronghold of rebellion against God and his justice in this world. Another way to put this then is Christ always conquers that city first and rebuilds that city into a new city with walls governed by his spirit to keep God's law. That's what that Ezekiel 36 verse was that we read earlier. The promise that God would do what? He would give us a new heart and a new spirit and he would take the heart of of stone out of our bodies and give us a heart of flesh and he would give us the Holy Spirit so that we could obey God's law, so that we could keep his statutes. Christ always conquers this city first, the heart first, our hearts first. He conquers it, 
He rebuilds it into a new city with walls, governed by his spirit, to keep God's law. Psalm 94, 15. Psalm 94 is a psalm of lament about all the injustice in the world. The poor are crushed. The needy are abandoned. Those who have no voice are, are trodden underfoot. And the psalmist cries out to God for salvation, for justice to be done. And the promise that he claims in Psalm 94 is, but judgment will return to the righteous and all the upright in heart will follow it. He trusts in God that God will bring justice to the world, that God will act to do what is right in this world. But notice who follows it. All the upright in heart will follow it. All the upright in heart will follow it. Only those who have new hearts will be inclined to his justice. Only those who have been given the spirit of Christ will be part of that return to righteousness in this world. Because if your heart is not just, you cannot do justice. If your heart is not clean, you cannot bring purity into the world. If your heart is not governed by the Spirit of Christ, if you are not governed by the Holy Spirit, then you cannot bring good governance into the world. Judgment will return to the righteous, to righteousness, and all the upright in heart will follow it. So I want to walk through, just quickly here, four application areas, personal, family, church, nation. How does this, how does this push out into some of these corners? Let me maybe start with this personal. So are you a, are you a law keeper, a rule keeper, or a rule breaker? You know what I mean by that? I just mean this is general. You know, your personality, think about your personality. Somebody gives you a list of rules, do you immediately think, oh, thank you. Thank you for these rules. I like rules. Or are you the rule breaker? You're like, what? Rules? So are you a rule keeper? Are you a rule breaker? I'm a rule breaker. Easy. Oftentimes we justify ourselves based on these definitions, right? I don't keep those stupid rules because I think for myself, right? I don't follow those, all those regulations um, because I, I, don't, I don't think they're right. I don't, I don't follow those rules because, um, because I'm, a, I'm a big picture thinker. I'm a visionary. Or you, maybe you say, no, I, I keep the rules because I see what happens when you don't keep rules. It makes messes, right? It makes messes, it, make, it complicates things, so I keep the rules. What's wrong with you people? Right? This world would be a happy place if you all would just park in the right places. Right? Fill out the paperwork. Do it on time. Deadlines, people. Right? right? You may or may not be able to keep rules. You may be a rule keeper. You may be a rule breaker. But unless you have the Spirit of Christ, you cannot please God. Unless you have the Spirit of Christ, you cannot please God. And it's only the pleasure of God that makes obedience a real joy and real freedom. See, whether you're a rule keeper or a rule breaker, you can do that and be, and, and be in complete agony. You can be completely depressed, com completely in the dark, completely sad, completely cranky, have nothing to live for, right? Even though you, you're doing the thing, you, like, no, I don't keep all those stupid rules. I'm living for, I'm, I'm a free person. I believe in freedom. I'm a free spirit. That's what I mean. Yeah. Right? And are you happy? How's that working out for you? Or you can be the, the, the best rule keeper. I, I follow, the, I check them off. I'm there on time. I'm there five minutes early. I turn everything in early. I got straight A's. I tuck my shirt in all the time. Right? And, and are you happy? Are you happy? How's that working out for you? You see, it doesn't really matter unless you have the spirit of Christ. You can't please God. 
Are you pleasing God? How does God feel about you? It's only the pleasure of God that makes obedience a real joy and real freedom. Remember Psalm 16 says that at, at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. When David thinks about serving God, he thinks, you have life, you have fullness of life, and you have pleasures unending. Right? That's David. Chasing after pleasure in God. Bless the Lord, all you his saints, you ministers of his who do his pleasure. Psalm 103. Right? To be a saint, to be one of God's people, is to be, have somebody who you've been set free to do God's pleasure. And now it's your pleasure. Now it's your joy. I get to do what he does. Think about maybe ways in which, you know, you, when you were a kid growing up, or maybe, you, you know, your kids, you're still, you still look this way, you think about this, and there's certain things that mom or dad or big brother or big sister, they do, and man, you so want to do that too. Maybe dad goes hunting. You're like, I want to go hunting with dad. Maybe mom sews things or decorates and you say, I want to learn how to do that like mom does. I want to go, I want to go, do, I want to work on the car like dad does, right? The thought to do it, you have to learn what it is that he does, learn what it is that she does, learn how to do it well. And so it's not like you don't get there and dad says, okay, we're going hunting, right? And he says, okay, this is how you hold the gun. And this is, you know, you have to pack these things. And you don't say, but dad, I don't like all these rules. No, the rules are, are you getting to do what you've always wanted to do, right? Hold your gun this way. Here, you gotta put, you gotta make sure you pack this. You're gonna need that, right? If you're gonna bake this cake, you gotta have these ingredients. You're like, but mom, you know, I just wanna make the cake the way I want to, right? No, right? The rules, the guidelines, the, the, the directions, the instructions are towards the pleasure. They're towards the joy, the thing you always wanted to do. That's what God's law is all about. He sets us free and says, here, at my right hand, pleasures forevermore. Everything you could ever dream of, the best things in this world, I invented, God designed. He created this world. He loaded it with glory. He loaded it with joy. And he says, I know the way to all of it. And David says, I know. And I'm chasing after you. Autonomy means law unto self. Autonomy means you are your own law, you rule yourself. And fundamentally, this is the great war between true, the true God, who really is a law unto himself, and every God-pretending heart that demands autonomy. This is the fundamental war in this world. And so, you can never be happy in that state because you are at war with God. That's, that's the fundamental reality. Are you at war with this God? Are you at war with the one who made you? Are you at, the war, at war with the one who has pleasures at his right hand forevermore? Because you demand to find your own joy, your own pleasure, to be your own God, to be your own ruler, to do it yourself. Or do you surrender? Lay down your arms, surrender to Christ, and begin by the power of the Spirit to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, where joy is, where pleasure is. When you do this, you begin to take glad responsibility for your heart and its fruit, not in servile fear, but in real joy and freedom. This is the center of all self-government. Quickly here, family, you cannot rule in your home rightly if Christ is not ruling in your heart completely. You cannot rule in your home rightly if Christ is not ruling in your heart completely. 1 Corinthians 11 says, I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Husbands, you cannot be a good head to your wife if you are not constantly submitting to your head in Christ. You cannot be a good head to your wife if you are not constantly submissive to your head in Christ. If you are unsubmissive to Christ, it doesn't matter what you say, it doesn't matter what books you're reading, it doesn't matter what Bible verses you quote, you are teaching your family rebellion. If you are unsubmissive to your head, you are teaching your family rebellion. Ephesians 6 says, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Parents, dads in particular, but moms too, 
You can only teach the discipline and culture of the Lord to your children if you are practicing it. How will your children have something? How can you give to your kids what you do not have? If you are not training you in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, if you are not disciplining you in the culture of God, in the word of God, how can you pretend to give that to your son or to your daughter? You cannot give what you do not have. Church, learning wise rule in the family is directly related to being able to rule in the church. This is why the Bible says that an elder must be one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence, for if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? 1 Timothy 3. And Hebrews 13 says something similar. Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. And then a few verses down. Obey those who rule over you. Be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. An elder is someone who is qualified to watch out for your soul because by the grace of God and by the power of the Spirit, he has been watching his own soul and the souls in his house. And you know this by the outcome of his conduct. That the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, is ruling his heart in such a way that out of it is issuing the kind of life that you want to follow. The way that he speaks to his wife and the way that he, he disciplines and teaches his children, the way his children love him. Integrity, honesty, these things. You see the Spirit working in him, and so you say, I want to follow that man. And this all means, of course, that you really do need to pray for your elders. You need to pray for those men aspiring to be elders. Pray for them. This is not something that comes magically or automatically. It's not like some guys are just lucky. This is the Holy Spirit's work in them. So pray for them. And also, you need to let them meddle in your life. Right? What are they watching over? What do they have to give an account for? They are watching out for your souls. Right? So let them meddle in your souls. You don't go to the, do- when you go to the doctor's office and the doctor gives you that form to fill out with all those things on it, and you know, it's a lot, lots of them are pretty embarrassing. Right? You don't think to yourself, well, who do you think you are? No, you're like, yeah, I'm, I'm glad. I'll tell you all about it. Right? I want you to know all of it because I want you to help me. Right? So I'm going to tell you, and then he comes in, and she comes in, and they ask you some really personal questions, and you don't think to yourself, well, I don't know about who, who are you. No, you say, I, no, okay, yeah, I'll tell you it all. Please help me. Right? Well, your, your pastor, your elders, have care for your soul. How much more so? When they say, I want to talk to you about your, your, your internet use, I want to talk to you about what happened when you were a kid. I want to talk to you about, I want to talk to you about these things. Let them meddle in your life because God has entrusted them responsibility for caring for your souls. Lastly, now therefore be wise, O kings, be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling. This means that a king cannot be wise or rule well apart from the fear of the Lord ruling in his heart. You can't be a wise civil ruler. You can't be a rule, a wise judge. You can't be a wise police officer. You cannot be wise in the civil realm if the fear of the Lord is not in your heart. Or 1 Timothy 2. Therefore I exert, exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead quiet and peaceable life in godliness and humility. Remember, Paul wrote this in the midst of the Roman Empire. Pray for Caesar, he says. Pray for Governor Felix. Pray for Herod. Pray for these men, many of whom were wicked. Pray for them. Give God thanks for them. For the relative peace we enjoy under their rule. Paul wrote this in the midst of the Roman Empire, and this was not political apathy. Because we know what he preached. He preached justice, self-control, and the judgment to come to Governor Felix. Governor Felix, what you need is self-control. If you want to govern this 
this era, if you want to govern this jurisdiction, if you want to govern this state wisely, if you want to render just judgments here, if you want to rule wisely, then you must be governed by Jesus. If your heart is governed by the Spirit of Christ, then you can be a wise judge and governor. And Paul here particularly urges us to prayer. Prayer is political activism. Prayer is political activism because the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord and like rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. Proverbs 21.1. And so this is the sum of it all. As you think and pray and look at the world around you and what's going on around us and the challenges and the difficulties around you, think biblically. And that means recognize that it all starts here. Where is your heart? Where is the spirit of Christ governing you there? Do you have some room that you've put under lock and key, some closet he's not allowed to go into? Open it up, surrender it all, because out of it flows the issues of life. You cannot govern in your family, you cannot govern in your place of business, you cannot govern in a school, you cannot govern in the church, you cannot be a, a helpful, useful civil citizen or ruler if the spirit of Christ is not governing you here. This is the first city. And if this city has no walls, none of the other cities will either. But if by the grace of God you've been given a new city, a new heart, and the Spirit is governing and guarding you, then you will be used by God to build his city here. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. amen. Father and God, we praise you and we thank you for Jesus who died and rose again in order to make all things new. I pray, Father, that you would pour out the Spirit of Christ upon us, that if we are still cities without walls, that you would come and conquer us and build new cities in our hearts. And if we have begun that new work, if you've begun that new work in our hearts, Father, I pray that wherever there may be any place where we're still trying to be our own king, our own queen, our own lord, our own ruler, Father, would you please come and graciously Take, take away our defenses, take away our swords, take away our shields, so that we might rule in godliness and with fear and trembling. Don't spoil your appetite. Every kid has heard this, and everyone knows how to do this, how to spoil your appetite. And it's usually in the, in the 20 minutes before dinner uh, when you are tempted to sneak into the snack drawer, and then you hear your mama says, don't spoil your appetite. And your response is, but I'm hungry. And mama says, good, dinner is coming. Everyone gets hungry, and all of us can only eat so much. We all need to eat, so it's a matter of what you eat and whose table you eat at. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Why is this? Because your soul, like your stomach, can only eat so much. When you regularly dine at the world's all-you-can-eat buffet and the devil is your waiter, it's no wonder you're not hungry when you come to the Lord's table. You've already stuffed yourself and you have no appetite for what the Lord offers at his table. So as you're going through the week, and when you are tempted to eat what you want to eat, to do what you want to do, hear God the Father's loving admonition. Don't spoil your appetite. Don't spoil your appetite with that explicit song. Don't spoil your appetite with that tasty morsel of gossip of what that girl in the other class did, or whatever that Kardashian did. Don't spoil your appetite with that craving for lust. Have self-control. Be patient. Govern your heart. The meal is coming. And you know what happens when you don't spoil your appetite? You're really hungry when you come to the table. You're ravenous. And that is good because you've worked up an appetite. And your father promises to fill you with good things better and more satisfying and far healthier than anything that the world or your selfish desires or the devil can cook up. Don't spoil your appetite and come 
The meal is ready. Here is the Lord's bread. Take it up and eat. Here is the Lord's wine. Take it up and drink. Come with your appetite. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a good father who feeds and nourishes your children. Give us the desire to hunger and thirst after your righteousness. As we eat this feast of Christ's righteousness, may we be satisfied and long again to eat at your table with your people. We ask this in Jesus' name, and amen. So the charge is this. Do not spoil your appetite and feast daily in the meal that God has given to you. I should have had my Bible up here to wave it around because this is the feast that God gives to us every day. There is a feast here at the table at the uh, culmination of our service, but there is also a feast that is, that is in your Bibles, that is on your phones, that is on your bookshelves. And so the charge is this is uh, eat what is before you and be about, I would encourage you all to join the Bible reading challenge that begins on Tuesday. Uh, There are Bibles uh, that the church would like to give to you that is out um, in the front there and pick up a reading schedule. So God has provided a grand feast for us and it's a shame to spoil our appetite. So receive with believing heart God's benedictions. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And all of God's people said, Amen. Christ Church Downtown thanks you for listening.